0: Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak with Angela Douglas, author of the new book, Nature on the Doorstep, A Year of Letters. Angela Douglas is Emerita Daljit S. and Elaine Sicaria, professor of insect physiology and toxicology at Cornell University. She is the author of several books, including Symbiotic Interactions, Insects and Their Beneficial Microbes, and Fundamentals of Microbiome Science. We spoke to Angela about how a patch of green space, however ordinary, is a perfect place to enjoy the natural world, why you don't need to be an expert or travel long distances to experience real nature, and why a little bit of neglect is the best way to create a wildlife-friendly backyard. Hello, Angela, welcome to the podcast.
1: Oh, hello, Jonathan, it's lovely to be here.
0: Well, I'm excited to talk to you about your new book, Nature on the Doorstep, A Year of Letters. Tell us, how did this book come about?
1: Well, this book, it's a a set of short essays about my small and decidedly ordinary backyard in upstate New York. And I wrote an essay once a week, every Sunday morning for a whole year. This wasn't an intentional project in any way at all. It just happened. Of course, it happened in the year of the pandemic of 2020 to 21, when I spent most of my time at home. It all started when I sat down at my desk to do some work on the first Sunday of the COVID lockdown of March, 2020. I couldn't concentrate, I was distracted. I switched to something completely different, to writing about the previous week's events in the backyard, specifically about how house sparrows were usurping the other birds at the bird feeder. I'd never done anything like this before. I'm not given to whims, but I guess I was in weird times and you do weird things. Anyway, I was totally focused on this writing for about two hours and the exercise made me feel content and better. And then at lunchtime I shared what I'd written with my husband and it made him laugh. Um, This was the first time we'd laughed in about a week. And then I shared it with my relatives in the United Kingdom and they were enthusiastic and they wrote back about their their own natural history observations. We'd somehow created a, a parallel universe that was in some ways more real than the craziness of human affairs at that time. And so I wrote some more the following Sunday. Um, If I remember correctly, it was about amorous blue jays and robins. And then the next week, oh, the daffodils and the lesser celandines had come into flower. And before long, I was just in the weekly flow. Whatever happened in the external world, and let's face it, some of it was really bad, I just kept on paying attention to my backyard. Well, I had my weekly essay to write, didn't I? And then the vaccination started to come through. Was it sort of late February or early March of 2021? And I decided there was light at the end of the tunnel and it was time to close the loop with the 52nd essay when I'd finished the year. And it was only then that I appreciated that I'd engaged in rather a special project and possibly someone other than relatives and close friends might be interested. So that's how it happened.
0: <laughs> great, that's great. So yeah. so you didn't really originally plan on writing a book? Not at all,
1: not at all. I mean, I just about finished my year and then I thought, hmm, <laughs> yeah, perhaps there's something here. <laughs>
0: And you had great responses from your husband and, and family members. Oh, so, yeah. yes, yeah. And,
1: and close friends as
0: well. That's fantastic. Well, we, we were excited when we read it as well. Um, so, so your instincts were correct. Um, Thank you. <laughs> and a key, a key message of your book is that the best way to benefit from interacting with nature is to pay attention to the natural world on our doorstep. You had mentioned uh, your backyard on a day-to-day basis and that we yes. don't need to travel anywhere exotic or go uh, far, far away, it's just, or, or even be an expert.
1: Totally, uh, yes, yes. Um, and I like to think this collection of essays or letters, I mean, they're letters, they're not addressed or, to a particular correspondent, that they capture the wonder of the local to observe how the natural world around us changes from day to day with the weather and the season. And as you say, I think we can sometimes fall into the trap of imagining that enjoying the natural world can only happen in pristine and faraway places, tropical forests of Costa Rica or safari in Kenya, the sorts of places that occupy natural history channels on the TV. But that's unrealistic for most of us most of the time. The benefits of our local nature are just as real we just have to pay attention for what's going on around us, even in unpromising places like my small suburban backyard or a small city park. When I was writing these letters or essays, I knew implicitly that I was on to a good thing. But it was only after I finished that I started to think clearly about what I'd been engaged in and started to understand that and, and to read and to realize that there's a substantial body of research demonstrating the beneficial effects of having regular access to nature. Even when the usual drivers of good health, which are wealth and income, education and exercise, even when you take those into account, access to nature has a small but statistically significant effect on our mental health and our physiological health. And I'd particularly like to mention a recently published scientific study that has shown that access to nearby nature was correlated with good mental health during the opening year of the pandemic. This study was headed by Tina Phillips at Cornell University and published in Nature and People. And interestingly, as well as a positive association between good mental health and access to nearby nature, they found a negative association between mental health and watching nature programs on the TV. (laughs) Simulated experience just doesn't cut the mustard. You have to get out there. And I I really understand and appreciate um, that finding. And then, of course, I wasn't just experiencing it, I was writing it. People call that nature journaling meaning reporting on what you experience. And there's nothing new about this activity. I like to think that nature journaling in the modern era started with Gilbert White, a man of the church in the 18th century. His natural world was dominated by his backyard and a beach hanger just behind his backyard in the small village of Selborne in Southern England And I relate to this particularly because um, Selborne is less than 50 miles from where I come from in Southern England. Gilbert Wright wrote letters to his friends about his natural history observations. And then eventually he put his letters together as a book, which he published in 1789. And it's still in print. Um, It's a great read as well. The Natural History and Antiquities of Selborne. And I have to admit that as I wrote every Sunday morning, I could sort of almost feel Gilbert White in the back of my mind or standing there. I I was just doing what he was doing. I have just one other thing I'd like to say about enjoying the natural world um, locally. And that is, as you mentioned, you don't have to be an expert. If you pay attention and start to connect, then you inevitably become curious. What is that? What is it doing? And it's so easy to get the answers these days. There are guidebooks, birds, flowering plants, trees, butterflies, you name it, there's a guidebook. And they're really good these days. And there's also plenty of information online and some ID apps as well, which are getting better and better all the time. And I'd like to make a a special, you might say plug, for the Merlin app, that's M-E-R-L-I-N, the Merlin app, for identification of bird song and bird calls. It's been developed by colleagues in the Lab of Ornithology at Cornell University, and it's free, <laughs> and it's tremendous. It's really good, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I will have to agree with you on that, the Merlin app. I mean, my my father is a much more of a birder than I, and I grew up with him listening to records of different bird oh, songs kind of figure out which ones they were. And yeah, he uses the Merlin app and it, it, he loves it. It's so yeah. um, it's amazing. And I know that scientists around the world are using it and adding to it. It's it's incredible. It's incredible. Yes, yes, and it's, it's free. Really <laughs>
1: and, and there are other apps as well for identification of, of other groups of um, animals and of plants. Um, and they're getting more reliable all the time. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah, that's that's neat. And on the flip side, that was really interesting to hear the two studies. I hadn't heard of that most recent study in Nature and People, but the healing uh, and mental health capabilities of being in nature are, are fascinating and, and true to heart. I mean, I'm glad that the, it's been proven scientifically, but I can speak for myself that if I'm in a large city for too long, I, I, I need to find a park or something just to experience some trees or greenery. So, but it was interesting to hear the 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 opposite, where if you're just watching nature shows, that actually that doesn't help, which I thought was really interesting.
1: Yes, it is. Um, uh, screens. I mean, it's sensory deprivation, isn't it? Really. Um, yeah. 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 Um, and even for people who have difficulty getting out there, um, you know, watching nature through the window. Yeah if you have a small backyard and you're not quite so mobile perhaps uh, it there's still an opportunities for making the most of access to nature
0: sure sure that's great there was there was a popular book a few years ago uh, how to think like leonardo da vinci i don't know if you ever came across it it oh, was no, no it, i don't know that. i mean it was it was more kind of a popular uh, book i don't know how uh, academically rigorous it was but but it did have some interesting stories the one that stuck with me was that Da Vinci there were plenty of people that came to him and said please teach me you know you are you are the master and so he would bring his students that wanted to learn sculpture or art up into the hills and his main practice would he would he would tell the students grab any rock that you see here he would go to you climb a mountain and there'd be a whole field of rocks he would find a stone that that attracts you and sit in front of it and then the students would be okay and he goes now we're going you get to look at that rock for the next six hours. (laughs) And the students were like, okay, this is what uh, Leonardo was telling us. So the day would end and then the next day he would say, let's go up to the mountains again. And he would repeat it, (laughs) he would do this for many days. And the level of students dramatically decreased. (laughs) But but basically he was saying that if you really paid attention to the stone or this rock, that you should be able to then draw it. You should be able to form it out of marble. And that this this attention, this incredible focus on this one item would allow you to kind of map it into your brain. Clearly, I don't have the patience to lick at a stone for an entire week, six hours a day, but there are other things that we can do. Do you have any advice for listeners of, of things that you did to both observe and also to promote wildlife in your backyard?
1: so in in relation to observing uh, it is a matter of taking time and paying attention in in the pandemic of course it was difficult to get exercise and we we just have a small backyard and a very small driveway and every day i would well my husband called it running up and down my driveway um, it was more of an ambling puffing trot <laughs> but um, but It was wonderful because I just absorbed what happened in that day as I went up and down and up and down. Um, Initially, I thought I was just being socially responsible um, in the sense that I wasn't puffing up and down past dog walkers and things like that. Um, But after a while, I became aware that this was just an important part of my life. And... Yes, an opportunity to take time to absorb, that's a little different from Leonardo's students sitting watching their their stone, but perhaps there's something a little similar to it. Um, It is very repetitive, just going up and down and up and down. I had lots of trotting turns because it's a very short driveway. (laughs) And and yes, I had the sense for the creatures that were around, what the weather was like, how it felt. Um, as each day passed it was wonderful in terms of actually promoting wildlife in the backyard um, it really helps to be neglectful to leave things alone and not to be too tidy I think it's far far easier to promote wildlife in your backyard than to be a gardener so the sorts of things that to leave well alone include things like, oh, don't mow the lawn quite so often, especially in the spring and early summer. And the flowers that people call weeds, such as clovers and speedwells and wild violets, are very pretty and they attract pollinators. And I appreciate that real gardeners would be horrified by this. They they want this um, pure green velvet, but wildlife don't want that. Similarly, After flowers have finished flowering, just leave the seed heads. It doesn't look terribly pretty, uh, but you're providing food for birds and food for insects, seed feeding insects, which in turn will be food for birds. Um, And this is a very easy way to promote wildlife. Don't clear all the dead leaves in the fall. Dead leaves on the ground provide sheltered places for insects and other creatures. In particular, we have in this area, uh, fireflies that come out in June and they're so beautiful. But those fireflies overwintered in the leaf litter that we leave in our backyards. Don't bother to fill your flower beds with ornamental plants, particularly bedding plants. Just let the weeds flourish instead. If you want standard garden plants, choose natives and choose perennials. Most of all, I think lower your standards so that you won't be tempted by herbicides or insecticides to keep your backyard unnaturally beautiful. A backyard that's good for wildlife won't look so special, but it'll be full of wonderful surprises. I'm afraid that sounds a little bit like a litany of don'ts, But really, it means just be lazy and enjoy your garden. Um, But it's not just neglect. In a sense, we have to spice that neglect with a bit of strategy. Um, In the book, I call it strategic neglect. And when and where to intervene depends on what's important to you. It's your backyard. And what you know works and doesn't work in your backyard as well. I can think of several instances of strategy in our neglect in our backyard. The garlic mustard and the golden rod would just overtake the whole garden if we didn't do some selective culling. But we let other weeds like um, wild carrot and daisy fleabane and calico aster. we just let them do their thing. They don't take over. There are some insect munchers that will totally defoliate and they're monsters. Um, In some years, gypsy moth is awful. um, And we use burlap traps. So um, you just get a roll of burlap um, and tie it around the trunk of your trees. And when the gypsy moth caterpillars climb up the trunk, they just nestle in the burlap. And then once a day for a period of three or four weeks, you go out with a bucket of soapy water and you pick the gypsy moths off and you don't have a problem with gypsy moth caterpillars. (laughs) Um, And another monster in our backyard is the invasive Japanese beetle and you can get a highly selective pheromone trap from the local garden supply store and it really is selective. Um, it, It traps virtually nothing other than gypsy moth. I'm sorry, um, other than I meant Japanese beetle, I apologize. I suppose one other intervention we have is we have a bird feeder with bird seed and we only put that out in the winter. Um, The small birds need calories in the winter and it's good for that. We always take it away in the summer. If you have a neglected garden, they don't need it. And I have a, a prejudice that... Commercial bird seed isn't terribly good for them, especially in the summer when they've got nestlings. So, yeah, those are the sorts of ways that we intervene. We try to intervene as little as possible.
0: Those are great strategies. I, <laughs> this idea of, of you know strategic neglectfulness, I love it. I love it. I have to convince my neighbors. I, it, it, I like that you mentioned it's the backyard because maybe the the front yard the neighbors might might get upset about this. <laughs>
1: Oh, actually, uh, we don't mow the lawn in the front yard either until, until we start to feel a little guilty.
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm the same way, the same way. But it's neat to see these, these types of strategies being used writ large. Like Cornell, for example, as you know, the main slope, I mean, that used to be pristine, always yeah. mowed. And I'm not sure when, it, when the, the switch happened, but maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, they decided, okay, we're not going to mow the majority of it. We're just gonna let it be wild, and I think that type of approach just makes sense for everyone, um, but particularly for wildlife.
1: Totally, and and it's I enjoy going along the slope so much more now that it's not mown so regularly. Yeah, yeah.
0: And it's also just from an energy standpoint. You, know, there's, you don't need to have this huge mower, and the, and the, the slope itself is pretty dangerous for a, a large machine, anyways. Yes. Aesthetically, it's it's beautiful. And I know that it that there's definitely more critters in there, uh, as well as more opportunities for bees and insects. You name it; it's, it's a win-win for everyone. It is. Um, it is. So I know there's a lot of different sections of your book, and that you have many different emotional experiences that were profound. If you could if you could pick a couple out of the book, what are some of your favorite?
1: Oh my goodness, so many things come to mind. Of course, one remembers expected changes and that come with the seasons and also unexpected things. I guess uh, we get a very special buzz when totally on cue every year, the Deptford pinks come into flower. So this is a a small plant, it's an invasive, Um, it's related to carnations, so it's a pink. And they come from my land of origin, the UK, Um, It's a small plant and it has delicate um, bright pink petals uh, which lie, um, five of them, they lie horizontally as if soaking up the summer sun. And they're so special because they're so rare in their native UK that I've never knowingly seen them. And here they are flourishing in my backyard. I mean, we didn't plant them or sow them, They're, they're just there. And I guess they'd be in everyone's backyard around here if people didn't mow their backyards um, in uh, the lawns, um, and we also see it in meadows and uh, on road edges um, around here. So that that's a really special and highly predictable event in in the year. Unexpected things. One thing that comes to mind is the time when I saw a bit of dirt on one of the petals of the coneflowers, we we were just having a look at them. And I think we were watching, was it masked bees or something um, um, pollinating these coneflowers in our backyard. And I noticed that a bit of dirt was sort of looping back and forth. It was moving, even though it was a perfectly still hot day. I think it was in July. And then I saw that it was actually a tiny caterpillar. And it had covered itself in little fragments of coneflower petals um, so that it looked like dirt. (laughs) Um, And I had no idea what it was. So I checked it up on the internet and found very quickly that it was called a camouflaged looper, a very appropriate name. And it would soon grow up into a wavy lined emerald moth, which is very widespread right across the US. Um, and of course, you know how it is when you spot something once, suddenly you see them everywhere. And, and until that moment, I'd not realized that we had you know, quite a lot of camouflage loopers in our backyard. And that, that, was, that was a lovely surprise. But perhaps the most unexpected thing of all was that there was always something to write about. Um, you know, even in the depths of winter, when the world was just white and gray and bitterly cold day after day, there was, there was always something that happened. It could be crows or squirrels or snow fleas. Um, and I started to get this fanciful notion that the natural world was always there um, and was always giving me something, yes, giving me something every week. Um, you know, I just had to sit down on my Sunday morning and. There it was. I just had to pay attention. And in fact, I should admit that um, writing about nearby nature has become rather addictive. And I'm still writing about the natural world every weekend. Of course, our lives don't have the constraints of 2020, 21. Mm -hmm. And my natural world is a bit larger and a bit more varied than it was then. But it's still nearby nature and
0: it's on my doorstep. And so I feel. Very fortunate. It's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah, there's, there's such a, I think you mentioned it. Was Did you say parallel universe? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes. It, but it's, it's a not, real
1: universe. It's, it's not, not. Yeah,
0: it's not some sort of theoretical um, <laughs> I love it because, it, yes, things have opened up more. The news, all that being said, the news is still quite depressing. And that there, that there are these opportunities right in front of us to enter a whole new world and and not that's not necessarily forget ourselves but actually remember ourselves and remember our connection to nature um this isn't escapism it's 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 looking into a whole other area that that many people just glance over because they're on their screens or, or within this human cultural experience and not realizing that they're part of this much larger ecosystem what you did is both healthy and as you said, are you continuing to do this so you're mm-hmm. getting pleasure out of it as well, and so uh, it's good for you and it's good for us to hear your uh, you know discoveries in in your new book Nature on the Doorstep. But but you're an inspiration, I think, for others to uh, get out there. And you know, as as you said in the beginning, you don't have to be an expert, you don't have to be uh, a scientist or any, anything, and you don't have to go very far. It's just right out there. And if you don't have a backyard, you're living in an apartment. There's there's a park nearby. It doesn't have to be your own property. So it's, it's a you, you have had a fascinating journey, and I'm so glad that you were able, that you wrote, first of all, wrote it down, and then also came to us with this option of turning it into a book, and we're very excited about it. Nature on the Doorstep, A Year of Letters. It was a, really a pleasure talking with you, Angela.
1: Thank you so much, Jonathan. It's been great talking with you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. That was Angela Douglas, author of the new book, Nature on the Doorstep, A Year of Letters. If you'd like to purchase Angela's new book, use the promo code 09POD to save 30% on our website at cornellpress.cornell.edu. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSANNUNCE and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.